You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith, 011-8830702. The WhatsApp line, 0727021702. Do get in touch with us and share your science-related questions for the good doctor. Doctor, happy Monday to you. Happy Monday, Labo. How are you? Listen, there are so many things going on. We are focusing on being grateful and positive because we will not allow the load shedding and the petrol hikes to get us down. Well, me too. Uh, I'm seeing, in fact, I've started taking photographs of the most expensive petrol and diesel that I have ever seen. Really? I never believed I would see. Yeah, yeah, I've started just, just, just in case I haven't. This turns out to be a dream. I, I want to prove to myself it wasn't. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. Well, listen, that, that is one that unfortunately is just that reality we need to face. So get your bicycle ready or get some wine and start to walk for wherever you need to go. <laughs> Let's go to the WhatsApp line lungi says the following hi dr chris i recently gave birth via c-section and i had a terrible experience i had a spinal epidural i started to feel hot they put an ice pack on my face i had a panic attack i cried i thought i was going to die i began to cough and they gave me some oxygen and drugs and i fell asleep my question is is this normal behavior or or i just lost it thank you well, uh, hopefully the outcome was a good one all the same and you now have a healthy baby. Let's hope that's the case. And congratulations. You don't mm. say what the baby's called or, or even what it is. So anyway, yes. congratulations on that front. But unfortunately, the birth process is the path that never goes smoothly for the majority of people, at least the first time round. Mm. And sometimes it's necessary to do cesarean sections in order to safeguard the health of the mum or the baby. But this is not something that should be taken lightly because it is major abdominal surgery. And you are basically cutting through the wall of a person's abdomen. You're then cutting through and tearing through the wall of the uterus, which by the time you're full term with a pregnancy is the biggest muscle in your body and one of the most powerful muscles in the body. Mm. And then you've got to stitch it all back together again. And there can be blood loss. There can obviously be a risk of infection, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very traumatic time because it's one of the most important times in your life and you want to make sure that it goes well. And so you tend to get quite stressed about it. And then on top of that, you've got the stress of the procedure that's happening to you. Hmm. So I think it's completely understandable for some people to, to feel that, that things didn't quite go the way they would want because we never know how we're going to react under those circumstances. So it's really hard to prepare for it. Hmm. It sounds like you cope well. It sounds like things are now kind of getting back to normal. And, uh, and I'd like to reassure you, if you have to go down that path again, because it will be something you're now familiar with, it probably won't happen again, which is the other thing people are more worried about. But it's not something people should take lightly. Having a cesarean section is something that you should do if you absolutely need to for the health of yourself or your baby, but it's not something you should do and take lightly because it is major abdominal surgery and it does have all the consequences and attendant risks that major abdominal surgery does have. Can we just add, because I love how you described how hectic the surgery is, because there's always this thing of, you know, oh, you never gave natural birth. It's not that deep. Not only are you cut through multiple layers, it's the only um, a, a surgery of that nature where you're expected to walk less than 24 hours after operating. <laughs> like, Well, actually, <laughs> we, we try to get people up and about pretty fast in hospital, and the role of good physiotherapy cannot be overstated. 
stated, it's so important to get people mobilising quickly because all the time you are not on your feet and walking around, you've got all kinds of health risks. One of them is that you can get deep venous thrombosis, blood clots, if, you, mm. if you're immobile. But also, and this is really important for older people, if you are laid up in bed, you are losing muscle mass. Mm. All the time that you're not exercising, you're, you're losing your strength in your muscles, you're also losing the strength in your skeleton. And so given all those risk factors, given the best thing for people is a bit of light exercise, physiotherapy is so important and mobilizing people as soon as possible after any kind of medical procedure where, where it's safe to do so of course is really really high priority definitely definitely listen um i'm i'm, I'm sharing with you my heart was with you my sister who sent through uh that's what that whatsapp and a special shout out to all of the ladies that have had to you know go through a complicated uh, delivery and c-section here is another question uh, afternoon, Lee and the listeners. Um, I got a question for the naked scientists. I would like to know why the aeroplane becomes a, a death trap when something goes wrong. Because I see people, they don't have a second chance. I understand uh, in order for it to be airborne, it needs speed and using the low pressure and the high pressure. Uh, above and lower the wings so that it can have lift there uh, but now why is it people don't have a second chance maybe to just jump out or why is the design becomes a, a death trip brain force mm, thank you brian hello brian well the answer is that air travel is incredibly safe actually and we tend to hear about air disasters when they rarely happen for that precise reason. They're very, very rare. But up against much more common causes of people dying, people who smoke and have a heart attack every day, the number of people that smoking kills in South Africa is about equivalent to a jumbo jet crashing every single day in terms of the loss of life and premature loss of life caused by smoking. And so we notice these things because they are exceptional. But on a practical scale, with small aeroplanes, you, you can engineer a way for people to, say, bail out if the plane were to have some kind of disaster. But with enormous aircraft, it would be very, very difficult to equip people with a parachute, the training to use it, and then an exit route in sufficient time for them to exit safely from the aircraft and, and actually have a higher chance of survival than staying in the aircraft. Now, there have been some amazing stories of incredibly skilled pilots, despite all kinds of havoc being wreaked on their aircraft, managing to land safely. There have been examples of aircraft where the engine stopped because the dirt and dust from a volcanic eruption got into an engine, and the pilot was able to use the altitude to glide for a period of time because planes don't just fall out of the sky. You can keep them under control because you can convert the gravitational potential energy into kinetic energy by a controlled descent, and that keeps the plane flying. He was then able to restart his engines and, and resume the flight. There have been other instances where, you remember the famous thing that got turned into a film, the captain actually landed on a river and got everyone out alive. So most of the time, you're much better off in the plane than trying to bail out of the plane. Mm. And accidents are very, very rare indeed. And as means of transport go, flying is actually one of the safest forms of transport because people know that the costs are potentially so high. So the standards that are set by the people right through from the engineers who make the engines, like Rolls-Royce, 
right through to the people who uh, fly the planes. The standards are set so high to make sure that that impeccable safety record is maintained. All right. Thank you so, so much uh, for that question that came through. One from Frank. Uh, Maidisa says, what is causing the large parts of Canada, particularly the Hudson Bay region, to be missing gravity? Uh, well, there, there's a number of things to, to consider. It's not just gravity. The Earth's magnetic field is also shifting. And this is because there are movements of the materials inside the Earth, which affects the Earth's magnetic field, but also its gravitational field. And the Earth has mass because it's got stuff inside it, but that stuff is not fixed in one place. It can flow and move. And if you move things from one place to another, then you move mass. And if you move mass, you will move gravity. You will potentially also move the way that the Earth's magnetic field behaves. So there are some patches of Earth which have more gravity and some which have less gravity than you would expect. One other contributor to that is ice. And, uh, and Greenland, for example, with a huge ice sheet on it, weighs in inverted commas much more than just the land because of that huge collection of water uh, as ice antarctica is the same because antarctica is land and there's ice sitting on top of the land in antarctica there's enough ice there to affect the gravity of that part of the planet and it pulls water towards it so the water is uh, actually higher in level around antarctica than it should be and that means if all the ice melted we'd all be flooded because there's plenty of ice down in antarctica that could raise sea levels by a considerable amount so you then ask the question, well, how do we know what the Earth's gravity is doing? How do we measure that? And the answer is that we've got various satellite missions in space. There's quite a famous one called GRACE, where if you fly two satellites around the planet, then they're going to be accelerated towards the Earth as they orbit by the gravity that's underneath them. And if they're a set distance apart, then one of them is going to feel the effects of that gravity first. And so it will be accelerated a bit more than the one coming along behind for a short period of time, which before it catches up. And if you therefore very precisely measure the distance between the two satellites, which you can do by bouncing a laser beam between them and using a process called interferometry, you can work out very precisely the distance between them at any given time. And that must be proportional to the mass of Earth they're experiencing beneath them, which is proportional to the gravity, of course. And that tells you how much that patch of the Earth's surface weighs, in inverted commas. All right. Uh, we have more questions coming through on 072 Good afternoon, 702. It's Tommy from Alberton. Uh, on the naked scientist, my question to Denzel, I want to ask the doctor there, uh, those other planets that are in the universe, your Mars, your any other planets, do they also experience things like what we call here on Earth, like earthquake? Do they have those shaking traumas that happened here on Earth? Thanks. Thank you so much. What a great question, doctor. They do. And they're, of course, not called earthquakes. But on Mars, they have Mars quakes. And about 15 years ago, NASA put a mission on Mars, not a rover, a lander that was fixed in one position, but was there to measure precisely this, the seismic activity on Mars. And they were able to show that just like the Earth has earthquakes, Mars has ground and Earth movements, too. And they're called Mars quakes. The same sorts of measurements have been made on the moon. The moon also has small tremors because of various factors to do with the fact that it, it's not completely solid in the centre. Mars is also still hot and probably a bit mobile in the centre. And therefore, it's fair to say that other rocky planets, because you can't have this on a gas giant, 
like Jupiter, for example. It would have to be a rocky planet, but there are plenty of those in the universe. It's almost inevitable that they're going to have very similar geology to what we have on Earth. Therefore, the same mechanisms that produce an earthquake on Earth are going to work on other planets, as we've seen on Mars, even moons, as we've seen on our moon. And therefore, yes, I think the answer is that that definitely does happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to another question. We've got Thomas in Santon. Hi, Thomas. Hi, hello, man. Yes, uh, I just want to ask about uh, the rover, the, the Curiosity rover that has landed on planet Mars. Uh, my question is, when looking at the video, you can see it busy moving around. So my question is, uh, how was that video taken? Because it doesn't show any... Uh, somebody taking that video. How was that video taken? That is my uh, Doctor, did you hear that? Uh, could you summarize for me? So he's asking about Mars Rover and saying how was that video taking, taken? Yeah, well, we've had a number of different rover missions on Mars now. The, the first two, the Spirit and Opportunity missions, trundled around on Mars until very recently, actually. Then Curiosity landed about uh, 10 years ago. And there are other missions now either on their way there or already in situ on Mars. These are enormous great rovers. The, the latest one weighs more than a car. And they are powered by a range of power sources, including nuclear batteries, so that they can continue to to run even when the sun doesn't shine and when it's cold. But they also use solar power as well, some of them. And they are equipped because they have a supply of electricity with a whole host of different devices to record and inspect the planet. And one of them, the devices they're using, is a video camera. And they take that footage, then you're you're going to say, well, how does that get home to Earth? Well, there is a satellite in orbit around Mars, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, as well as other probes that are orbiting Mars, which have small dishes pointed at the surface of Mars, and they have big dishes pointed towards the Earth. And so they are a relay station. So the pictures are uploaded from the probe via that orbiter and back to the Earth. And when we want to send messages to the probe, to what we want it to do, to drive in a certain direction or uh, drill into a certain bit of rock, then you do the reverse and you send the instructions back the other way. The downside is that it actually takes quite a long time for the message to get from us to Mars um, because obviously the two planets are not always side by side. Sometimes they're on opposite sides of the solar system and therefore it's going to take you quite a few minutes for the message to get from the Earth to Mars and for the thing to do whatever you wanted it to do and then tell you it's done it. So if you were having a phone conversation uh, over the radio waves with Mars, it would be a really weird conversation where you'd be waiting 10 minutes at a time for the answer to come back. Mm, mm. All right, that's quite, uh, quite an interesting one. Let's go to Adrian in Johannesburg CBD. Hi. Uh, hi, Doc. How are you there? Okay, my, right. question, yeah, my question is, uh, we are told that Americans, uh, Michael Armstrong has landed on the moon. But 30 years down the line, America is failing to send the second mission there. That's number one. So I wanted to know, is moon landing something that really happened or is a hoax? So well, Adrian, Adrian, we, we, we let can me safely uh, say it really did happen. Adrian, let <laughs> me ask you, are you, are you believing that it's a hoax because no. they haven't done the second one? They haven't done the second one, one. Number two, mm-hmm. even if you look at the quality of the pictures that we are getting from the moon, mm-hmm. black and white, yet those guys developed something of high 
uh, uh, what can I say, high-powered technology that could land on the moon, but they can't produce us color pictures. Something very simple to have done during those days. Okay, so let me ask you something, Adrian. When we think, you know, before I let the doctor come in, when we think of how crazy it is that as, as, as a species, we went to the moon not, not really knowing what's going to happen when we get there, right? Is, yes. it, is it not a lot to be saying, ah, guys, ah, no, there's no color picture, so you didn't go. <laughs> no, no. No, get... really, because, because I'm reading these conspiracy theories. That's the problem. <laughs> That's... And, and, and I believe uh, the arguments sometimes can be so convincing. I mean, the, the arguments they're advancing, they're quite convincing. Yes. Okay, let, let's yes. hear what the doctor has to say. Doctor, and I'm, I'm sure you are challenged by all these conspiracy theories, which probably makes up for some very fascinating reading and the, the element of confirmation bias also probably makes it worse. How do you respond to the fact that why were there no color pictures, which must mean that it did not happen? Well, the pictures they sent back to the Earth were grayscale pictures, and that was a reflection on the communications technology at the time because the bandwidth that they had to send data back was insufficient to send us back enough uh, data to give us color in real time. And also the devices they had were relatively primitive. Remember that the computing power that they had to play with to get them there was less than an average pocket calculator. Mm. But they definitely did go. And the evidence we've got for that is we can see the mess they made up there when they were there. We can see <laughs> uh, we can see bits of detritus that they've left behind. We can see their abandoned bits of junk and equipment. We can see their footprints to an extent. And we can also see bags of astronaut poo which have been discarded on the moon. Yes, they are there. And uh, there's also a mirror that was put on the moon. And that mirror is bouncing laser beams back to the Earth on a regular basis, which is how we know that the moon is moving about two centimeters away from the Earth every single year. We couldn't do that without a mirror put on the moon's surface, and that mirror was put there by those moon missions. Also, horrible pun as it is, watch this space, because the next set of lunar missions are now beginning to, to take shape. And the aim is to be heading off to the moon again, in a very near term. And one of the first steps towards doing that is to build what's called the Lunar Gateway. So the plan is that they're going to put a space station in orbit around the moon, and that will facilitate going there and coming back because you'll be able to fly to the space station around the moon, perhaps even from the International Space Station, and then from there it's an easier hop down to the moon's surface and then from the moon's surface back to that space station. And it, it actually makes the whole process of going to the moon, doing things on the moon and coming back that much easier that much safer and therefore more achievable. And that is the plan for the very near term. And there's already missions afoot ready to start doing this. But somebody says that there are definitely colored pictures of the moon landing. That's from Gabriel on Twitter. Yeah, they've been taken. There are pictures taken, but what they beamed back live were black and white pictures because of the constraints of the technology and, and the bandwidth they had to play with when the mission was actually taking place that people were watching. All right, all right. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. I am going to do my best to come to back to some of the questions that you shared through that we didn't get an opportunity to go to. That's the Naked Scientist.